What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Simon Hallett, and he is the co-chief investment officer at Harding Lovner, which is a firm that's been around for about 40 years and manages about $73 billion. He also is the majority owner of Plymouth Argyle, a football club in the UK. Uh, he has a fascinating background and has been running money on an international basis for many decades. He is uniquely insightful to discuss how to pick stocks, what the difference between growth and value is, and how to use both in order to identify companies most likely to outperform the market. The track record of Harding Lovner's international funds has just trounced the MSCI benchmark by 250 basis points annually over decades. So this isn't somebody speaking theoretically. They have actually put processes to work that have allowed them to dramatically outperform. With no further ado, my conversation with Simon Hallett. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Simon Hallett. He is the co-chief investment officer at Harding Lovner, a firm that manages about $73 billion in assets. He is also the majority owner of Plymouth Argyle, a football club located in the UK. Simon Hallett, welcome to Masters in Business. Thank you for having me, Barry. So let's talk a little bit about your background. You earn your BA at Oxford, and then you begin working in the financial services industry in London in the early 1980s. Tell us about that era. It was actually the late 70s. I, I graduated um, in 1977 and went to work for um, the Midland Bank, which was then one of the big four clearing banks in England. Um, in the early 80s, I moved to investment management and finance, you know, uh, investing, let's say, in Hong Kong. Uh, in, in London, that was an era of high interest rates. We were just coming off the financial crisis of the mid-70s. And when I moved to Hong Kong, we were just beginning in a uh, property collapse. I moved there in 1981, and the property market collapsed in, 90, in uh, summer that year. Um, the oil price was 32. It was about to go. Uh, fall in half as well. So it was an era really of uh, continuous crises as far as far as I was concerned. Hong Kong in the 1980s, that had to be a house of fire though, because Hong Kong was really ramping up. There were the gateway to Asia, not just Japan, but China and, and a lot of the rest of Asia. What was your experiences like in Hong Kong? Well, it was the first time I traveled anywhere other than to France. So everything about it was tremendously exciting. As you say, it was a great time to be in Hong Kong. It was a few years before the rest of Asia began to open up. But Hong Kong itself had just had a massive expansion in population as a result of uh, immigration from China. After the misery of England in the 1970s, it was just amazing to be surrounded by people who 
often lived in great poverty, having just arrived from China, but being left to their own devices to better their lives almost always successfully. So, you know, all the cliches about Hong Kong, about it's, you know, that it's a culture of independence, it's a culture of trying hard for personal success, were, were true. And I, I just found it tremendously exciting. So what do you make of what's been going on with Hong Kong the past few years, not only since the handover from UK, but increasingly aggressive Beijing policy towards Hong Kong? I find it horrifying. You know, Hong Kong was very much left to its own devices. I thought that the Sino-British Joint Declaration in the mid-1980s was going to be a treaty that guaranteed the independence of Hong Kong. Clearly, that's being overcome. And I think it's not going to be good for Hong Kong as a place. And I, I worry about the future of the people that I know who are still there and the rest of the population. I don't think it's going to be healthy for, for Hong Kong. Quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about your investing style. You're essentially a bottoms-up fundamental stock picker. Since we're, we're yep. talking about the macro landscape, do you ignore what's going on in the background? Does it not enter the calculus? Or does that force you to modify the sectors and companies you're considering? No, we, we try very hard to ignore it. We're investment people. So, you know, we're kind of curious about the world and we're opinionated. So we have opinions about the macroeconomic environment, but we try very hard not to let it influence our portfolios. I actually like to quote something that you wrote four or five years ago when you're asked about the economy and what you think. Uh, you know, you, I think you, your basic answer is, you know, why would you ask me? Why do you think that my forecasts have any value? And why do you think <laughs> forecasts themselves have any value? And that's pretty much the view that we take. You know, the academic studies suggest there's very little correlation between, let's say, GDP and stock market returns. I think right. it's interesting to discuss you know, why there's little covariance between GDP growth and stock market returns. But the fact is, there, there's not. Um, secondly, you can't forecast GDP. So it, it distresses me that the financial services industry devotes so many resources to trying to make forecasts that are inaccurate and have no bearing upon other customers' returns. <laughs> So, you know, I look upon macroeconomic forecasting as damaging to, you know, good investment returns. So, no, we don't, we, don't, we don't bother with them at all. Having said that, we do think about them a little bit in thinking about expectations for how we should expect our portfolios to perform. So, you know, a good example would, would be after the financial crisis where, you know, our expectations for the economy such as they were were that, was based upon Reinhardt and Rogoff. We thought it would be a long, hard slog to recover fully from the financial crisis. We thought that knowing a bit about people's psychology, that they'd start the year optimistic, they'd end the year pessimistic, and that that would lead to more market vol volatility. But we thought it would be a good environment for our kind of investing in high-quality, long-duration growth companies. And we were, we were right about that. Interestingly, we were completely wrong with our forecast of stock market volatility. And we were actually right with relying on the Reinhardt and Rogoff forecast of the macro economy. So it's quite ironic that the thing that you know we think we can't forecast at all was the one we actually got right. I recall, I want to say it was December of 07, that Reinhardt and Rogoff came out with a short white paper 
that looked at five previous financial crises. Now, remember, the market peaked in 07. To come out with yeah. something like that in 2007 was, um, was way, way ahead of its time. And that white paper not only was prescient, it became the basis of 800 years of this time it's different. They really had a handle on what financial crises do to stocks and economies. Did their research really influence how you look at, at the recovery from a financial crisis like 08 or 09? Absolutely. I mean, th- that view that it would be a long, hard slog was entirely based upon their work. And I-, I have to say that this is something that I look upon as typical of my entire career. I- I've-, I've been very open about things. We have relied very heavily on other people's work, on other people's academic work, informing our own views. Um, you know, I-, I always say that I haven't had an original thought in my entire career, but I've been very, very good at identifying useful thoughts from other people and in implementing them in investing. Uh, Reinhold Rogoff was a, was a classic case. You know, we read the book. The book became popular. It was available for 15 bucks uh, on Amazon, and it um, helped us with our expectations and our client communications for a decade. People <laughs> underestimate the power of the written word, I think. The pen is mightier than the sword, and it's certainly true in, in the world of finance. And I think there's this relis- relentless pursuit of originality. We all feel the pressure to be original, to be original thinkers, and I don't think it's necessary. I think um, you know there's so much good advice about how to behave, how to invest out there, and what's, what's the key to success in investing is taking that in, in advice and uh, using it for the benefit of your clients. I couldn't possibly agree more. Let's talk a little bit about the track record that Harding Lovner has put together. The global equity portfolio since inception has outperformed uh, MSCI by 250 basis points annually. That's pretty interesting. Is this still the same methodology or philosophy that was used when you joined the firm back in, what was it, 1991? Um, the, The philosophy has not changed, but the methods, the investment process has a lot. Our investment process today is much more structured. It's much more disciplined. We're much more objective about how we define the characteristics of the companies we follow. And the result has been a gradual shrinking of the freedom that a portfolio manager has. I think that's one of the interesting things about the lessons from behavioral finance. What we've learned is that people need to control their behavior, but they find it difficult to do so. So one of my roles as uh, co-chief investment officer and previously chief equity officer has been that I've had to set out the rules and then make sure we stick to them. And of course, that's going against the uh, financial services culture that a portfolio manager is the top dog in an investment process and people don't like having their freedom restricted. So the methodology has changed and it's been a methodology that has been disciplined, it's been objective, and it's been reducing the autonomy of individuals. But the philosophy has been constant, that we will focus exclusively on long-duration growth growth companies and pay attention to the price at which their stocks um, trade. So, so let's talk a little bit about the methodology. Your firm references four qualities for a company to be a potential portfolio holding, competitive advantage, quality management, financial strength, and sustainable growth. How do you quantify these? Some of them are kind of squishy, like 
like quality management. How, how do you determine who's a quality manager or not? And is that a subjective squishy rating or do you come up with a way to make it much more quantifiable? Yeah, the, the, the squishiest of these four criteria is undoubtedly the one that assesses management. And again, you know, thinking about how the process has changed over the last 30 years, we used to think we knew quality management when we saw it. And often that simply met, meant that we met them and we liked them. And, you know, there's very little correlation between whether we like people and whether they're good managers of corporations on behalf of their shareholders. So, you know, we are today much more objective in how we assess management. And just to give a little bit of detail on that particular one, we quite early on started using cash flow return on investment, you know, based on the work of people like Michael Moberson, not just to value companies, but to assess assess the abilities of management, not just to generate free cash flow, but how they allocate it. We actually used the Holt valuation system with some adjustments for our own beliefs. But we, we can use that to look at, for example, how management allocates capital. And for us, that's, that's a very, very important way of looking objectively at their track record. I think when you're investing for the long-term in quality growth companies, obviously a lot of the value is in the future cash flows. But the past has to be some guide. To, you have to believe that the past is some guide to the future. So a good track record is something that, that we like to see. And we will use that to assess management. The, the other aspect of high-quality management for us is corporate governance, which is essentially how those high returns on capital end up with shareholders. Mm-hmm. You know, are they retained in the company? Are they paid out as dividends? Are they distributed via uh, buybacks? Or are they used to further the interests of other stakeholders, most noticeably, of course, the um, executives of the company? So corporate governance for us, again, is more than just a matter of sticking a finger in the air, making a judgment. It's uh, we, we have a series of checklists which have identified the factors that we think we, are important in assessing overall levels of corporate governance. And I'm not going to pretend that all the companies in which we invest are perfect. One of the checklists, for example, asks questions about um, you know, record of integrity, and they mm-hmm. will be exclusionary. So if companies don't meet a minimum standards, we won't, we, won't, uh, we won't follow them. So we have got more disciplined. We have got more structured. And I think when it comes to allocating capital, we've got much more objective. But I will say that when it comes to assessing management, we also have an element of assessing their strategic vision. And that really would be from analysts making judgments, from reading transcripts, from interviewing managers, and so on and so on. So the arc at harding Lovner really has been from qualitative judgment towards objective judgment. And that, that huh. applies to the four criteria that we use as well. So, so I can certainly see financial strength being totally quantifiable, and even sustainable growth, you can track that over time. What about competitive advantage? That's one of those sort of Warren Buffett moat type things that also sounds a little subjective. How do you make that less squishy? We make it less squishy, but again, being structured and disciplined. So we rely very heavily, not just on analyses of competitive advantage, which is really an answer to the question, what is it that this company does well? that gives it an advantage in the industry in which, which it competes. But we also look at the Michael Porter four forces structure of an industry to make sure that the company is operating in an industry where 
high margins can be protected. So it's not always objective and quantitative, but it is structured and consistent across uh-huh. across the various sectors and geographies in which we invest. And you know, ultimately, competitive advantage is seen in high margins and strong cash flow return on investment, uh, which are sustainable over long periods of time. So it, it, it again, it's a mixture of trying to be disciplined and structured about where you're making judgments and trying to be objective about where you don't make judgments. And I think, you know, in some ways, this is a feature of all research. We, we are not ashamed that a lot of the inputs we use are backward-looking, uh, but backward-looking inputs are the ones that are facts, uh, subject, of course, to uh, an opinion about the value of accounting rules. Uh, I think that people have described them as opinions, not facts, but at least they're more objective than forecasts which, of course, are subject to bias. So you know, doing research, trying to value companies, it, for us, is a mixture of looking backwards for objective facts and looking forward, to, uh, making forecasts, but recognizing that those forecasts are subject very heavily to biases. Hmm, quite, quite interesting. So, Simon, you're the majority owner of the Plymouth Argyle Football Club. This raises a question, why buy a soccer team? Is this an investment or a labor of love? It's certainly not an investment barrier, or if it is, it's the worst one I've ever made. Um, <laughs> it's a labor of love. Um, it's not just any football club. This is the football club that I supported as a kid. I first stood on the terraces in uh, 1966 when I my, my family moved to Plymouth. So this is the team that I've uh, been a fan of for most of my life, for you know, 54 years. So it, it's a labor of love, and it's really a little bit of giving back to the community in Plymouth. Uh, the role of the football club in local communities is probably greater than sports teams in America. They're deeply embedded. They have a long history. We have a community trust, which is very active, doing good works. And it's important to me that Plymouth Argyle be a vehicle for me to give back to the community in which I was raised. And frankly, the, the community that paid for my education. You know, I've turned my education into, you know, this successful business that I've reaped the rewards of. And the ratepayers of Plymouth paid for my high school education and for my university education. So it's a way of giving back. And I should say that I, I, I don't like the idea that successful entrepreneurs who make a fortune should give back. They've usually done it by selling goods and services at prices that people want to pay. It seems crazy to me that people say that Bill Gates should give back when you think of all the good that his product has done in the world. So it should be a voluntary act. But for me, you know, I, I generated a return on the investment that um, the ratepayers, the taxpayers of Plymouth pay made. And uh, I think some payback is appropriate. But it's also, so, so it's a happy coincidence that it's also my boyhood club. So it's been great fun. So I understand, I'm, I'm a World Cup fan. I understand generally how uk soccer clubs move up and down the different leagues but for us ugly americans who may not really understand first tier second tier third tier can you give a little explanation like in the u.s we have professional football teams and we have college teams we have major league baseball teams and there are minor league teams and nary the twain shall meet but uk soccer clubs they can move up and down from from league to league. Can, can you give that a little uh, explanation? Sure. 
So leagues here are closed systems, and the divisions within a league are mostly closed systems. You know, it's very unusual for a team to move from the American League East to the American League West. So obviously it has happened in the past. But so they're closed systems. Leagues in professional sports throughout the world, not just in soccer and not just in England, are much more open. So let's say, let's talk about the four divisions of English football. There are actually about 100 divisions, but let's just talk about the top four divisions. If you think about divisions in a league being horizontal with no movements between Central and Western, in English football, the leagues are hierarchical. So there's a progression from, let's say, the fourth tier up to the first tier, which is the English Premier League that people have probably heard of. So at the end of every season, teams in a division are ranked by their results, and the best few go up to the next division, and the bottom few go down. So it's terrifying. So, you know, the, the fight <laughs> in football is not just about winning the division. It's about being in the top, top few, so you get promoted, and avoiding being in the bottom few, so you get relegated. And getting relegated has a massive emotional impact, uh, as well as a financial impact. And, uh, you know, as, as, as we know, losses, losses count more than gains. So in some ways, the fear of relegation is greater than the glory associated with getting promoted. But it, 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 it's a terrifying system. But the impact is that it makes almost every game meaningful. Hmm. Uh, loss aversion applies not just to investors, but to football clubs. That, that's quite fascinating. So in the U.S., there were complaints that, you know, the perennial favorites for a long time the Dallas Cowboys in football, the New York Yankees in baseball. Uh, it was the teams that spent the most money. And even with the salary cap, the big market teams had an advantage because they could attract players that potentially would earn all these marketing um, and advertising endorsements. You're more likely to get that in New York or L.A. than you are in, let's say, Cleveland. How important is finances to the success of a team and is there any limitation on what the teams can spend other than how much their owners are willing to write checks for there are limitations but they can be got around by owners willing to write checks so we have financial fair play rules but they're not terribly effectively enforced and financial fragility of clubs in the lower divisions is, is quite a feature of the last 20 years many have gone bankrupt including my own, 11 years ago, almost went, uh, went out of business. So it's a very interesting question about the role of money in success, though. And here it's where it's like investing. You know, I, I mentioned that there's a lot of behavioral finance that's relevant to managing a football club, in particular when it comes to getting players. So what's clear, and this sounds obvious, but it, it's not immediately obvious because football is a game like investing, where short-term outcomes are the results of a combination of luck and skill. But it's pretty clear that over a long, long period, skill dominates luck, and the most skillful players generate the best results. Also, it's a reasonably efficient market, and the most skillful players tend to cost the most. But it's not at the edge. It's a completely inefficient market, and there are all sorts of things that you'd recognize from the field of behavioral finance, where people make errors in over overpaying for players. So people associate good players as representative heuristic. People associate good players with good clubs. They assume that he's a good player if he's played for a successful team. And they assume that he's a bad player if he's played for 
an unsuccessful team. So a player of equal ability who plays for a top team will be more expensive than one who pays, plays for a bottom team. So similarly, people will, will extrapolate. It's astonishing how often a guy will come out and score an unusual number of goals for, for his long-term record, and then will we'll get traded, following which he mean reverts, and uh, that you know the price that was paid looks to be irrelevant. So when we're thinking about huh. managing Plymouth Argyle, we're thinking very, very hard about these inefficiencies in the market and how we can best use, use our resources. So I think that there is a role for thinking about market inefficiencies, thinking about how those inefficiencies are created by human behavior and then exploiting them so that you can outperform, essentially, your financial resources. So is there any sort of money ball for football yet, for, for soccer? Have people come up with different ways to quantify the performance of players that perhaps are non-standard and provide an edge until everyone else figures it out? To me, the money ball for soccer is money ball. You know, the lessons in money ball are applicable not just to investing. It was a book that we sent to our clients, but uh, also also in football. And there's been a progression in the use of data analytics from baseball to basketball, where they said it could never happen. It's now kind of beginning to creep into hockey and American football, the NFL. So it's it's at the very beginning stages of being used in um, in soccer. And it's very, very interesting to me that the two clubs that are most associated in England anyway with the use of data analytics are one very small low-budget club called Brentford, which actually in a couple of hours we'll know whether it's been promoted from the second tier to the Premier League, which is owned by a hedge fund manager who made his money out of sports betting. And he basically gathered data on soccer matches throughout the world and was able to assess the odds of Team A beating Team B and bet on it accordingly. So he bought Brentford and has used data analytics essentially for recruiting in the way that I was describing previously very, very effectively. At the other end of the scale, Liverpool Football Club, who at the moment are, as they like to say, champions of everything, um, <laughs> are owned by John Henry from New England Sports Group, which is also the owner of the uh, Boston, Boston Red, Red Sox. Sox. Yeah, And you know, there's the link straight back to Moneyball with Theo Epstein, you know, being Billy Bean's um, number two at the Oakland days. So the Moneyball effect, I mean, people refer to the Moneyball effect on football. But again, what's fascinating is that it's just like as described in Moneyball and just as I described in the changes in our investment process at harding Lebner. The, the use of data analytics is a way of becoming more objective in assessing players and overcoming biases in the same way that the use of objective data is a way of assessing, let's say, corporate management and overcoming your biases. But the people, the practitioners, resist it. And just as Billy Bean described with the scouts, I've experienced with my colleagues at Harding Lovner, and I'm now experiencing with football people at Plymouth Argyle. We don't know about these things, but actually turning them into a process and applying them. Richard Thaler, uh, Michael Moberson was telling me that Richard Thaler was observing at a sports analytic conference recently that that everybody knew that, you know, three points is more than two points in basketball. 
and everybody can calculate your success rate. Yet it took the Golden State Warriors, I believe, to start shooting three points. You know, Larry Bird would concentrate on two points, whereas he could have increased the results for the Boston Celtics if he'd taken more more three-point shots. So turning what we know into practice is your key competitive advantage, in my view, not the knowledge itself. And again, at Argyle, as I like to say, one of the things that I think will help us is that we have a football management team that's young, it's fairly inexperienced, and it's very, very willing to learn. So they are fully prepared to embrace data analytics in helping them you know, recruit players. I have one last soccer question for you, and it's about Theater of the Greens, the, the park where the Argyles play. Destroyed in World War II by German bombers during the Blitz, how closely located is the current stadium to where the original, I think it was uh, late 19th century, stadium was erected? Uh, it's on the same site. Um, we're, we've been at Home Park um, uh, since 19, 1901. Actually, uh, Plymouth is a naval port, and uh, Plymouth and Portsmouth are the two big naval ports on the south coast of Britain. So Plymouth was completely destroyed during the war. You know, it was very heavily bombed. And the, uh, the Argyle Stadium is only a couple of miles from the city centre. In fact, it's on a hill in a park. And if you look out, you can see the um, what's called Plymouth Sound, which is where the ships live. So actually, it's, it's quite funny in a not particularly funny way. We've just completely refurbished our very historic grandstand, which dated from the early 50s and was getting very dilapidated. And when we were doing that, one of our worries was that we would unearth unexploded bombs. Uh, Luckily, (laughs) we didn't. (laughs) Wow, that's quite amazing. Let's talk a little bit about your process. I read in an interview you did some years ago, I think it was with Kate Welling, that you were, quote, relentlessly bottoms up. What does that mean, relentlessly bottom up? And is that a way for investors to get better than market returns? Well, we think so. By relentlessly bottoms up, I mean that we don't allow beliefs and our forecasts or other people's forecasts about the macroeconomic environment to affect stock selection or portfolio construction. Though, as I said before, we do let it, we do think about the macroeconomic environment and how we should expect our portfolios to behave in certain regimes. But our core belief is that by focusing on high-quality companies that can grow their earnings over long periods of time and paying attention to the price you pay for them, you're going to generate reasonable returns that have a good probability of being in excess of the market if you can control poor investing behavior. We believe that there's a difference between price and value and that price converges on value over time, but that that convergence is at an unpredictable pace. We also believe that it's important to assess value but that uh, it's very, very difficult. Uh, we all know that the value of uh, security is the discounted present value of the cash flows associated, where the appropriate rate for discounting is some combination of a risk-free rate and an equity risk premium. But we don't really know what the proper risk-free rate is or what the proper equity risk premium is, let alone can we you know, accurately forecast cash flows. So assessing value is very, very difficult, but we think we, we have to do it. It always reminds me of that line from Ken Arrow about his weather forecast during World War II when he told the general his weather forecasts were useless 
and he should ignore them. And the general staff told Ken Arrow that the general knew that his forecasts were useless, but uh, he needed them for planning purposes. So, you know, we recognize that our valuations are inaccurate, but we need them. And our essential belief is that if you get the valuation wrong, and therefore the price you pay for a company is too high, the growth will bail you out and give you a return over a long holding period. So that, that's why we want growth. That's, why, that's how we think about value. And then quality for us is partly a function of our personalities. We tend to be rather conservative, risk-averse people and you know we recognize that if a return is minus 100 percent in any series then your long-term return is going to be zero so uh, for us high quality means you know something about high margins it also means about ability to defend those margins it means something about management and corporate governance as we've discussed but essentially it means that the riskiness in a company is relatively low and we're not going to get scared out of selling it at the wrong time What we didn't recognize 30 years ago when the firm started was that quality was a factor that was going to be recognized by the academics as a permanent or allegedly permanent source of return. We just thought it was something that appealed to us and would help us you know, generate the returns that we needed for our clients. So you guys were Pharma French before Pharma French discovered quality. That's that's kind of interesting. Let's stick with the topic of growth. How do you define sustainable growth and how can you identify that in advance? It's easy to say, look at how much Amazon and Google have grown their earnings for the past 20 years, but how do you do that in 2002 or 2010, looking out a couple of decades? Well, we didn't. You know, now we, we <laughs> invest on the kind of spectrum from value to growth. And at one end of the spectrum, you know, deep value is buying companies, you know, in the kind of Ben Graham security analysis way where you're getting, you know, you're paying pennies in the pound or cents in the dollar for assets. And at the other end, high growth is where a company goes public with just a bright idea. For us, growth is the mixture of quality and growth is, is neither at the extreme of one end nor at the extreme of the growth end. So we do own companies such as Amazon, which don't have earnings, but they have massive cash flows. But we haven't owned it for 20 years. I think we've owned it for several years, but not not several decades. So, you know, if companies just have a bright idea, we're not going to be able to forecast. And we're going to say they're not going to meet our financial strength criterion, where financial strength doesn't just mean low leverage, but it means having access to capital in a way that's sustained. And we look upon bank capital as being rather volatile, let's say. You know, there's the old story about a bank bank is somebody who lends you, money, lends you an umbrella when the sun's shining, takes it away when it starts to rain. I think there's an element of truth in that. So we like companies that are re- relatively, that have financial strength through generating their own cash flow or at least have sufficient reserves to tide them over the time when they're going to be generating cash flows. But look, this, this is we, so we tend not to try to identify the massively fast-growing companies. But to, to generate high returns and to generate the type of returns we've, we've generated over three decades, you don't need to have portfolios that are exclusively in those kind of companies. They've, they've been very fashionable over the last two years and particularly over the last three or four months. But you know, the classic company for us is I always say Nestle. We've owned Nestle for 30 years. It it never 
um, grow, or very rarely grows earnings in you know more than 15 or 20 percent. It usually grows earnings at seven or eight percent. Um, it reinvests its cash flows, and the 30-year annual over 30 years, the annualized returns on Nestle are about 12 percent. You know, massively more than our portfolios, by the way, <laughs> and much more than the market. So it's that ability to compound reasonable growth over long periods of time that never gets dramatically overpriced in the market and is really where the core of our returns have been. And it, it, again, it comes back to behavioral behavioral issues. You know, one of our clients asked one of my colleagues once why we sh- he should pay us an investment fee for 30 years to just out- sit on Nestle. And my, my colleague's answer was, well, you wouldn't have done. And I think that that restraint in behavior whenever he's yelling at you to trade 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 has been a key to our success our holding period is over five years and that's consistent across all our strategies you know so for us successful investing as charlie munger said is a matter of finding a bunch of good companies and sitting on your behind the trouble is most people can't sit on their behind for so long yeah to say the very least so let's talk a little bit about the current macro environment which is somewhat unique in, in at least the past century's investing history. I guess you have to go back to 1918 to find something similar. How do you look at the pandemic, the lockdown, how well certain countries like South Korea or Japan or Germany have managed it, and how poorly certain countries like the U.S. or Brazil have been managing it? Does that impact where you think about putting capital or the type of companies you might want to invest in? Um, in? In the short term, when the pandemic hit and it looked like we were possibly going to be facing a depression, we did do a kind of relook at all the companies in our portfolio to make sure that they had the financial strength, just to you know, double check that they had the financial strength to withstand a period of, let's say, two years of zero positive cash flows. So that, that was one you know, immediate impact. In the longer term, I guess for us, the issue is about valuation and how we should think about interest rates that are approaching the zero bound. You know, as I mentioned, we do care about price. We do calculate value. And interest rates that are close to zero do very strange things for value, particularly do strange things for the value of growth of uh, growth stocks. And I think that part of the justification for what we've seen happen in markets since the pandemic really took hold has been about, you know, the revaluation of cash flows that many, many years into the future. But, you know, you, you know perfectly well and your listeners will understand the, the basic arithmetic that when interest rates are zero, you're indifferent between a cash flow, cash flow now and a cash flow in the future. The, the, the difference, of course, is in riskiness, uh, but the actual value, if you can, if you can forecast it, will be, will be the same. So, we, we've seen this massive revaluation of growth stocks. Though I have to say, I think that to some extent that's a post hoc narrative that's woven around, um, you know, what, what in many ways ways is randomness. You know, we're we're extraordinarily good at producing stories to explain something that's all already happened. Yet those same stories tend to have no predictive value. So you know, I thought it was interesting um, that as we think about the value of growth stocks and the relationship between price and value. A paper that I think AQR came out with a month or so ago, looking at the influence of interest rates on the whole value growth dichotomy. And they found that you know, value stocks 
did not respond to higher interest rates as we all feared. So, you know, we, we are thinking about the current economic environment. We're thinking about the impacts of the pandemic. But we are, um, apart from you know, just checking our belts and braces, we haven't taken any action. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. Quite fascinating. So looking at value, looking at international, over the past decade, this is both before the pandemic and in the recovery since the markets bottomed in at the end of the first quarter, value has been getting trounced by growth. Growth is the big winner. And the U.S. has more or less been beating not only emerging markets, but uh, developed ex-U.S., do you see that continuing? What What is more likely to reverse the past decade, uh, growth beating value or the U.S. beating international? Well, we're you know we're global we're global investors and we're global growth investors. So I want growth to outperform and I want the world to do at least well relative to the U.S. So I'm ho- hopelessly biased, and I must say that over my now forty year career, my biggest flaw that I recognized quite early, but didn't understand what the reasons. Uh, my biggest flaw is that, um, you know, I'm very optimistic about the future, but I'm very pessimistic about about the current. And we know, we now know from the kind of behavioral evolutionists why why, why that is, that all of us are risk averse about the present and risk takers about the future. So, again, I find the ability to time these things zero. So my my gut tell me, and I have very little confidence in my guts, so be warned, is that the rest of the world will turn around relative to the U.S. before growth turns around relative to value. And the reason is that I do think that the value growth thing is at least something to do with the economic cycle and interest rates. And I think Mm -hmm. that the economic cycle is poor. I think that for obvious reasons, and I think that interest rates are going to stay lower for longer, which, by the way, is something that we've believed without too much conviction since the financial crisis. So, you know, once again, the pandemic is revealed as continuing or accelerating trends that were already in place, which is an interesting issue. Uh, When it comes to the rest of the world versus the U.S., I think one of the issues that the U.S. has had, or the U.S. stock market or publicly traded stock market has had, is that many of the world's great growth companies are American. And increasingly, they're, they're what's driven overall market aggregates. So it's important to note that um, things like American small caps have also done pretty well over the last few years. So I think what we're going to see is that the broad market in the U.S. will underperform the broad market outside the U.S., but that we may well continue to see the dominance of some of these big market cap cap names. But, you know, I have to say at some point it's just a gut feel that, you know, it's been down so long it feels like up to me. So let me ask you a quick question about emerging markets. When you first started, EM was a lot of materials and energy. Today, that's transitioned to consumer brands and big Chinese technology companies. Talk about this transition a little bit and tell us what it might mean for investors going forward. 
I think um, it, for investors, it's um, a little bit dangerous, and it's something that we are worrying about at the moment and trying to formulate policy. You know, the the if you want a diversified global emerging market portfolio, you have to be careful at this stage because Chinese stocks dominate the market benchmarks. And the direction is that they're going to come to dominate it even more. So we're already at over 40 percent. And it looks like we're headed to towards, you know, 60, 65, maybe even 70 percent as the Chinese market that is available to foreigners invest in the benchmarks continues to broaden and deepen. So I think that for investors, you have to be very careful about, you know, how you consider a diversified emerging market exposure. We're very much at the stage that we were at in Japan in the late 80s, where Japan dominated the non-US benchmarks at one point. The Japanese market was six, over 65%, I think, of the non-US equity index. Wow. And of the Japanese market, about a quarter was Japanese banks that were poorly managed and trading at 15 times book value. So a diversified exposure to non-US markets was a very risky one. You know, I think that there are parallels with the dominance of China in the emerging market benchmarks, but they're not, you know, his history rhymes. It doesn't, it doesn't repeat itself. One difference is that Chinese stocks are not dramatically overpriced as they were in Japan in the late 1980s. So, you know, a lot of what's happened in China, for China to become such a large part of the benchmark hasn't been through price rising, prices rising. It's been through you know, more opportunities for investors. And that, that's actually something that we've tried to take advantage of at Hardy Lovner over the last few years. So I think that transition is important for investors when they're thinking about the riskiness of global emerging markets. What, what that transition actually means for emerging markets is a much more difficult question, I think. And I just note that, you know, back in the early 80s, when I started investing in emerging markets before they were actually called emerging markets, you were looking at companies like Malaysia, the Philippines by the late 80s, Indonesia. But outside of Southeast Asia, it was you know South Africa, and you were just beginning to invest in a couple of um, Latin American countries. And we all thought of emerging markets as being warrants on the West. You know, that if US GDP grew a little bit more than expected, emerging markets would soar. And obviously, it was resources and resource consumption that was the, um, the common thread that tied the two together. Um, we, we hoped in the 2000s that the rise of the emerging market middle class would mean that emerging markets would be less volatile, that they'd be less financially leveraged, and that the, the rise of spending at the expense of consumption would be helpful in broadening um, exposure to you know, non-commodities. Non but that was all turned over with the rise of China and the you know, massively rapid industrialization of China. And instead of the West being the common thread to commodities that drove the emerging markets, it was China. So, you know, we haven't really seen the broadening of emerging markets that, that, that we'd, hoped, we'd hoped to see. I think that we are beginning to see it. I think that it, will, it is something that's still, still on the come, but and that the rise of China has to some extent masked what's happening elsewhere. But at the moment, you know, with the pandemic coming on, I think that, you know, it's going to be a while before we see the good values that are apparent in some of the consumption stocks in emerging markets being turned into stock market returns. Huh. So 
I have to get to my speed round questions, but before I do, a quick question. Outside of China, you mentioned Malaysia, what other countries are intriguing? India, Vietnam, Turkey. Does any specific country call out as, wow, this could be the, if, if China is the new U.S., what's the new China? I've always thought that it would be Vietnam. You know, I first went to Vietnam to do investment work over 20 years ago, and I've followed it. It's got a large population. It's got a lot of the characteristics of underlying dynamism with a large or large-ish internal market. But, you know, governance has been an issue. Uh, politics has been an issue. It's very unusual that you get this mixture that you get in China of, you know, top-down government that where you may hate the politics, you may hate you know, the, the lack of individual freedom, but where at the local level, the ability to be an entrepreneur, generate profits for yourself is really quite intense. I don't think there's anywhere else in the world like it that also has the ability to put the infrastructure that enables, you know, economic growth and wealth creation uh, at the same pace. I, I, I honestly can't think of another parallel. Huh, quite, quite fascinating. All right, so let's jump to our favorite questions, our speed round. These are what we ask all our guests, and hopefully it provides a little insight into the the man behind the portfolio. Um, tell us what you're streaming these days. What are you watching on Netflix or Amazon or whatever podcast you might be listening to? What What's keeping you entertained during lockdown? Um, well, funnily enough, the same things that keep me entertained not during lockdown. I mean, it's a terrible thing to say, but... I, you know, I live in the countryside in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and I've got, you know, a large house, plenty of room for me and my wife. We miss our grandkids, but our life is mostly unchanged. Our idea of an exciting time is to sit in our armchairs with our Kindles. So, but I do <laughs> miss podcasts. And actually, in the last couple of weeks, which I used to listen to in the car on the way to work, so in the last couple of weeks, I've started going for an hour's walk every day. And um, my favorite of the new ones is the uh, second series by Michael Lewis. Um, uh, where he's on coaching, about coaching after yes. his um, theories on refereeing. But apart from that, I listen to you know I listen to this podcast. I listen to Ted Sides. I listen to Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Um, I, I listen to the you know standard behavioral finance or oriented type financial ones. I also listen to ones about sport. I'm particularly interested in data analytics and football. So, you know, that overlap between sports and investment that I find so fascinating. I don't watch very much Netflix. I don't watch very much TV. And it, it's not because I don't like it. I actually love it. I haven't got the self-discipline. My attention wanders. And my kids used to get driven mad when I'd say, who's that guy? And um, they'd have to explain. I also... That's very funny. I bias against Netflix for behavioral reasons. So it's an interesting thing. I used to love the idea of Netflix when you used to get posted DVDs. And I was one of these people who, you know, would order my DVDs on a Sunday and I'd order, you know, 1960s French movies with subtitles or, you know, Japanese directors, again, with subtitles. But on Friday night, when it came to watching a movie, I wanted to watch Love Actually or some romantic comedy. And it, again, I think you tend to see everything through behavioral eyes once you know about, about this. This is the classic... In the short in the short term, we want fats and sugars. Though our long term self wants fruits and vegetables. So again, you know, in the in the short term, you want to watch a romantic comedy. Then your long term self says watch something intellectual. 
So I don't watch much Netflix. The, the only show I've watched in the last month has been something called The Great, which is a kind of rather surreal mixture between a uh, kind of dark comedy about Catherine the Great, which I think is on, I forget, I think it's on Netflix. Huh. I'll definitely check that out. Tell us about yeah, your it. early mentors. Who who influenced the way your career developed? Who helped shape your investing philosophy? Well, I don't. I don't mean to be. I don't mean to be dismissive, but the people that I worked with and for in the early stage of my career was during that time when investment management was about individual genius. It was about you know people being smart, smarter than other people, not being you know you had to know more. You had to. Be, be smarter you had to you know it wasn't about structure and discipline so the people that i worked with really were examples and i they were great people and i enjoyed them very much and they treated me very very well but everything i learned from them we've overturned at harding Lovner. you know i often say that if you look at anything about one of those firms that i worked at which were successful firms we do it the opposite at harding Lovner. so they were kind of negative mentors and i don't mean that to be rude about them so I very heavily relied on book learning and what what we've learned at Hardy Lovner. And you know, my longest standing relationship is with David Lovner, who's been a friend of mine since the mid eighties and you know, business partner and close collaborator now for thirty years. So Dave, David would deny it, but I've learned a lot from David over the years. You you mentioned you enjoy sitting uh in your easy chairs with a Kindle in your hand. What what are some yep. of the books you're reading now? And what are some of your favorite books? Um, uh, well, I, I a lot of my favorite books will have been mentioned on your um, podcast before. I, I do need to mention that we owe a great debt to Michael Moverson. Um, I, you know, I often say that it's remarkable that you can get his complete works for less than 50 bucks and you can learn everything that I've learned in 40 years about decision-making and investing. Um, I'd give a shout out to Rousseau and Shoemaker, their book from 2002, I think, Winning Decisions, uh, which I think is one of the best books about, you know, decision making and doing research and doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, I read a lot of novels, which is very personal. The best book I've read in the last few years and probably the best book I've read in my life was uh, last year when I read Robert Caro's four volume biography of LBJ. Um, which sounds daunting. I, I think it must be three or four thousand pages in length. I read it on a Kindle, so I can't tell you exactly what it weighed. But it's a superbly written book with, which, with often novelistic-like descriptions of, for example, life in the Texas Hill Country in the early part of the 20th century. But it's much more a social and political history of the U.S. in the first half of the uh, 20th century. It's brilliant on politics. It's brilliant on the political process. It's brilliant on corruption and the corruption of power. But above all, um, the third volume, Master of the Senate, is brilliant on race and on the length that, you know, 12 senators from the South went to keep institutionalized racism the norm. So one book that I'm reading at the moment is actually I've started again. And I've uh, just finished the first volume, The Passage to Power. I, I think everybody should read it. It's, um, it wasn't particularly topical when I read it, but I think um, it's topical now, and I thoroughly recommend everybody read it. And if you're, you can only bring yourself to read one, read Master of the Senate. And on the subject of institutionalized racism, I think everybody should read 
Dan Bauer's book called American Prison, which is um, so Dan Bauer's a journalist who has a political point of view. I think he writes for Mother Jones, but he experienced incarceration in Iran for four years and then um, put himself in, as a prison guard in the American penitentiary system. And the book has this very interesting structure of observations of a prison guard in the American penitentiary system today. And that's oh. sort of appalling, as you can imagine. But every other chapter is a history of the penitentiary system. And I think that in itself is fascinating and gives a lot of explanatory power as to, you know, where we are today with, you know, mass incarceration in the United States, with incarceration, uh, incarceration being dominated by African-Americans. Um, and, you know, I, I find that appalling. And I think that Caro goes a long way to describing why racism is so institutionalized in this country. And Dan Bauer goes to explaining how it's reflected in our uh, prison system. Huh, quite, quite fascinating. What, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in investment management? Well, firstly, I'd say don't think that you know what career what career you are going to be best at or have most fun at when you're a recent college graduate. So, you know, give it a try, but be prepared to give it up. I think Dan Epstein or David Epstein, David Epstein in Range talks a lot about, about, about this. It's a very good book on uh, career planning. But if you are determined to be in invest, investment management, I think you have to recognize that it's an industry that is both blessed and cursed. It's blessed by the fact that everything's relevant. So if you're of great intellectual curiosity, which I think is necessary but not sufficient for being a good investor, everything's relevant. So you have license to go and find out anything, anything you like. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But it's also a curse in that you don't know where to stop. And that's actually one of the lessons of that Rousseau Shoemaker book. Just finding out more, just for the sake of finding out more, makes you feel better about individual decisions. It gives you more confidence, but it doesn't help the accuracy or the validity of that decision. So be careful. But the most advice I can give you that I would give anybody is just stay honest. Don't let anyone compromise your integrity. You know, this is a fabulous industry to be, be in. I've been very, very lucky that it's my career in time has been one where the investment industry was tiny to where it is today, where it's huge. So, you know, basically all you needed to do was to be sensible and stay honest. And I don't know that the industry is going to grow as much as it's grown over the last 40 years, but I do think it's going to be absolutely critical just to stay honest and you at least give yourself a good chance of uh, capitalizing on any success you may have. Huh, quite, quite fascinating. And our final question, what do you know about the world of international investing today that you wish you knew when you were first starting out over three decades ago? Oh, the importance of, the, to me, this, the behavioral finance findings, and, or more generally the decision-making findings. It, it's a very, very different world of investing today. You know, when, when I started, I've had a good education. Um, you know, I was widely read. I was kind of curious as a young guy. And I didn't know anything about stocks, nothing. Nobody in my family had ever mentioned a stock. Nobody had ever owned one. I barely knew how a bank worked. You know, today, finance, finance is, is finance is pervasive throughout the media and throughout, to some extent, anyway, the education system. So, you know, the world of investing is very, very different, but the world of human beings is very much the same. And I wish I'd known 
earlier on, just how important it was not to be smarter and know more than everybody, but to be able to control your own behavior. Partly I found it fascinating, but also I think it's at the core of why why we've gone from being smart people who knew a lot to being uh, intelligent investors. Huh. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Simon, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Simon Hallett of Harding Lovner, which manages about $73 billion. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure to go to Apple iTunes or Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever your finer pods are sold, and you can find any of the previous 350 such conversations we've had over the past six years. It's, it's actually this week is our six-year anniversary. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Go to Apple iTunes. Give us a review. Be sure to check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. You can sign up for our daily reads at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Maruful is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.